called the secret mobilization in the Gubinka. So it's called the Russian, Russian white province. But uh, right now they prefer to, 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 to send, you know, uh, Asian um, boys from, from this kind of, from these uh, republics. And I believe that's the problem. That the first world thing, the, they don't have a, you know, people in this, in the, in the, you know, the young guys in the big cities, and uh, in the, well, we'll say, real Russia, or you know, Republic of Russia. And the second thing that's the, that that will be a real political uh, problem for them, if, uh, you know, the, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> reports would say that. In Ukraine, you know, 10,000 guys from, from Moscow and uh, St. Petersburg has been died and uh, no, one will, no one knows what happened with them. And especially right now when we know that they don't took their, you know, bodies of the, the, the soldiers. And I think that, that that's the main, uh, the main thing. Thank you, Mikhail. Uh, Aline. Thank you very much. I quickly want to talk about the, the mobilization. Personally, I don't think it's necessarily a ethnical thing. Is cheap? Yes, they're taken from their place because are cheap, basically, and the mobilization will be um, a voluntary, um, voluntary, not be conscription sent to Ukraine, be volunteers basically, and we see that it goes up. It's a slide from the poor places to the middle, and it if you. So Moscow in the center, Moscow will be bad. But now the, the good example is we see that they're trying to get in Novgorod battalion and the Ufa and Chlebinsk, which is say middle to a pack. Uh, a lot of and the other thing that I I could speak about mobilization. This is no I don't know very much. Just someone who is a military expert I think says that it is very baffled because the military production hasn't been uh, expanded very much. It just, what was building, it's at maximum capacity, but introducing more lines, production lines. And another thing is they are, the, they are sending the third battalions in. Basically the third battalions are the conscripts, but the training, it's like sending your uh, sergeant, training sergeants. Yes, they are very good, but they are supposed to train the entire division. They are not supposed to put into one battalion and send them to the war. So if you take that in consideration, I don't think that we see a big mobilization because as, as the expert said, they will be, if they want to go to a, big, to a bigger war, they'll keep these uh, trainers in and start the training rather than be sent to basically die. So in other words, the capacity to massively increase troops is relatively limited, right? because of that factor. Um, thank you, Aline. Peter? Yeah, so, uh, Domin, you, you touched upon something that I find interesting, which is the fact that um, uh, Russia has uh, taken a lot of troops from border areas towards, you know, Finland and, and uh, many other places. And uh, my question is, wouldn't there be any way for us to pin them there? Uh, I, and I don't know exactly how, but... Uh, uh, so, so that's one part of the question. So, so it creates some sort of situation where they couldn't move all those troops. Um, uh, the other uh, aspect uh, or comment is that if our side had a working information operation, then an obvious uh, 
thing would be uh, that uh, our side would now be all over Russian Telegram saying, oh, we're, you know, St. Petersburg is left undefended and, and uh, it's uh, so dangerous for Russia now. And what are those people thinking in that kind of thing? Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, so as far as pinning is concerned, I think that the simple reason why they're you know, quite happy to move troops away, not very really happy, but willing to move troops away from, from those bases, like in Alakurti, right, next to the Finnish border, they know that the West isn't going to attack. They're confident, they're absolutely confident that uh, Finland isn't going to invade, um, isn't going to invade Russia, and that America isn't going to invade Russia. And they're absolutely confident that all of their stuff about how NATO has an aggressive posture against Russia and wants to do harm to Russia and invade Russia is absolute nonsense. They clearly know it themselves because if they actually believed it, they would never ever be removing the troops um, from those border areas, especially you know places like Al Kurti, um, which is a which is a very important military installation that basically protects the ICBM launchers that are further um, to the northeast, right close to Murmansk, um, from any from any incursions from say Finland uh, specifically, and also from Norway to a lesser degree, right? Um, but as to as to so I don't think there's a way because of that quite practical reason. I don't think there's a way to pin Russian forces in those areas because simply Russians know that nothing's going to happen there and there's no there's no need to do so, really. Um, as to the second how about, part about... How, how about Georgia or other areas where the, you know, non-NATO actors could, uh, could try something? Now, that is a little bit more interesting. Georgia specifically, right? Had Georgia had a very different government uh, rather than this Ivanishvili uh Ivan really backed party that it currently has. Is Castelli awake yet? Why why isn't he here? Okay, we say Georgia three more times, maybe he'll he'll appear. Um if Georgia had a very different government, I think they would be adopting a similar posture to what Kazakhstan is adopting now and try to you know extricate themselves as much as possible from uh Russian influence and you know that including South Ossetia and Abkhazia of course. Um as possible, while Russian troops are all tied up in Ukraine, right? Um, and you're right. I think that that could actually be plausible. It could be possible, except it's probably not going to happen because of the way that, uh, the, uh, b- because of how the Georgian government right now is um, very appeasing, so to speak, right? Um, and and it's kind of basing everything on, oh, we're, we're going to get along with Russia. And actually, uh, a lot of people that stand behind that Georgian government actually have substantial interests of their own in Russia as well. Um, so I think, in theory, yes, in practice, probably not going to be happening. Joseph, what do you reckon? I don't know, gentlemen. I'm, I'm a little tired, I'll tell you the truth. But um, I just wanted to maybe tell our audience, if you guys could please... Retweet the space. Tell tell your friends about the Walsh Report. It helps us out a lot. We do appreciate it uh, every time you do it. Uh, please uh, contribute to Maria Aid if you can. Uh, we really do appreciate people contributing to Maria Aid and showing support. Uh, and last, if you do have a question for our panel, uh, we've got Dylan, we've got Slav up here, we got Daniel, we got Axel. Maybe uh, depends. You know, if you catch Axel in a good mood, you might get a question out of him. Uh, so I uh, do appreciate it. Delman, I'm going to go to bed because we got a great guest speaker coming up today uh, at, I believe, 12 p.m. Eastern time, uh, a soldier from the Foreign Legion of Ukraine. Is that right, Delman? That is correct. At noon Eastern, that is in five hours and 20 minutes, uh, 6 p.m. in Central Europe, 7 p.m. in Kiev, 
5 p.m. London. Uh, we're going to have a representative of the International Legion in Ukraine uh, speaking with us, to us, um, answering your questions, etc. Uh, so keep your uh, schedules free for that. Uh, thank you, Joseph, and sleep well. Ian? Um, I, th- I think you're totally correct that in the um, Russians, no, they're not going to be attacked, so they really don't. So they're they're making the tactical decision to like essentially strip their borders and send everything they can to Ukraine. Um, but I think there's a, probably a lot of mid-level generals who are really not happy about this situation uh, because for the last like 20, 30 years, they've been very proud that the fact that they've got like deployments covering the whole of Russia and part of the reason why, for example, the Air Force is underperforming in shit is because they've spent a, a lot of their resources making sure that like the whole of Russia is covered by, um, by its Air Force rather than shrinking it and making it more effective. So I think there's a lot of like mid-level generals that are very unhappy that like they've got very large parts of Russia that are essentially undefended conventionally. Oh, I think you're quite right, Ian. I think they're probably very unhappy. But, I mean, at a very high level, I, I'm, I'm glad you agree with me that this really means that Russia does not feel fundamentally threatened uh, by NATO, right? And the proof is in the pudding. Um, all, of their, all of their nonsense about how uh, they're, they're being endangered by NATO expansion, right? And NATO expansion was nothing else but more and more countries asking pretty please, can we please join NATO so we don't get invaded by Russia again and look at all the countries that didn't get to join NATO in time, such as Georgia and Ukraine, and got invaded by Russia. It's clear that it's very clear to the Russians themselves at, a, at the highest level that there is no danger indeed coming from NATO. Slava Ukraini. Uh, Nina can go before me, so thank you. Oh, okay. Uh, Nina, go ahead. Uh, thank you, and thank you, Slava Ukraini. Uh, <laughs> I just comment what you have been talking about, that uh, Russia is moving uh, equipment away from the border, from the Finnish borders, and and I don't know if they have even moved away from the Chinese like uh, borders. Uh, and then, uh, well, that's not to what I wanted to say, but anyway, from Finland, and, and then they are saying that the West and the NATO is, is threatening and, and the aggressor here for Russia, and and they are moving uh, away everything from the border. So it's really a contradictionary uh, statement. Uh, that's just like uh, shows how uh, everything what they say is the contrary. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Um, completely agree. Peter. Uh, maybe it was Slava now. Okay. Slava Krini, do you want to go ahead? Or do you want Peter to go ahead? Peter, Peter. I'm, I'm uh, chewing. Sorry. Thank you. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 uh, I agree with all that has been said, but I still feel like this is a huge missed opportunity for our side, uh, for information warfare and uh, and basically a, 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 I don't like the word propaganda, but the propaganda coup in pointing out that NATO is in fact now defending Russia's borders. Uh, I also think, uh, as as also Joseph uh, um, hint or explained, is that if you are actually a true believer in the Russian, uh, if you're a Russian military person who truly believes in your mission, that it is to fight NATO, and then suddenly uh, 
your government leaves your entire flank totally unprotected uh, and is unconcerned about it, what does that do to your morale? I mean, you, you have been told that NATO is the enemy and suddenly they're not, and was it all a lie? I think there's so much to exploit here in terms of, of morale and uh, internal dissent and, uh, and uh, sort of uh, information victories that we are not currently pursuing. Uh, we is the collective West. So there's a couple of factors there that I think have to be. So sorry, earlier I forgot to uh, talk to you. Uh, to respond to your note about uh, why isn't the West exploiting uh, this and, and plastering all over Russian Telegram, right? I actually I agree with that. That is certainly something that should be done. Um, maybe that's something that can be done at lower levels as opposed to the the high level. But maybe this is something that you know citizen activism is is good enough for um, effectively, and maybe even more believable as a more distributed approach. Um, that that I think that's quite an interesting approach. Um, the other thing that I note, I I think that other than you know some generals and like colonels and up at the very least, they probably don't have a good enough overview for themselves to be worried about. Right? If you think of your um, you know your lieutenant or your sergeant or your private who's in Alakurti, right? he knows that he's being moved from Alakurti to Ukraine. Right? That's clear. Right? But he doesn't know that the base is being emptied. I don't think. He certainly doesn't know that this is a pattern across other bases in the area and doesn't have this, you know, more 30,000 foot view perspective of it. Um, you know, he'll think, okay, fine, you know, shit, we're being shipped off to Ukraine. Uh, we heard that lots of, lots of Russian troops have been lost there, lots of casualties. Probably don't really want to go. I mean, it's cold up there, but I'd rather be, I'd rather spend um, my summer in northern Karelia and fighting off mosquitoes. Uh, rather than being in Ukraine, right, fighting a war, that that's probably something that they that they're considering. Um, but outside of that, I don't think they have this, you know, bigger bigger picture view and consideration of, um, oh, you know, the, these bases are now going to go undefended. Is a NATO just going to exploit us? Going to attack? Um, I I just don't think they think that way. Uh, most of them wouldn't anyway. Um, you're right. Some generals probably would and do. Um, Good, po okay. good points. Thank you. And I'll, I'll cycle down now. Thank you for the chat. And Doman, thank you for your extremely knowledgeable and uh, uh, persistent hosting of this space. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Um, and th thank you, likewise. It's, it's always a pleasure to chat with you uh, as well. Ian? Yeah, I, I, I don't think um, kind of stepping up like propaganda kind of thing would do much. I mean, trying to convince the Russian populace that they're essentially under existential threat is probably not the best thing for ending the war. They're more likely to want an increase than decrease. And um, like the, the Russian state fundamentally acts out of paranoia a lot. I mean, look, look at like the very um, early 80s, I think 83, 84, um, they went right up to like very high nuclear alert. And the Americans didn't even realize that, but they thought they were under imminent threat. They were checking out um, whether Americans were stockpiling bloods. And it was, you know, they were really thinking that they were going to be attacked. It makes bumping up their paranoia even more is not necessarily a good thing. I don't think. I think, yeah. Okay, so let, let's let I'll, I'll try to add additional layers of nuance to this. I think you're right. Bumping up their paranoia is not a good idea. 
at the same time, it maybe is a good idea to, and this is very difficult, and I will, I'll be the first one to acknowledge that this is very difficult to achieve because of the sheer levels of Orwellianism that exist in Russia and the sheer you know, detachment from reality that exists across Russia and that was carefully cultivated by decades of domestic propaganda. Um, however, adding a few sort of, let's say, chinks in the armor, right? Maybe saying, look, why... Why are all of these you know, borders with NATO going completely undefended? Maybe that is actually slightly useful. Um, maybe that is actually slightly useful in this context. Um, the point of Georgia specifically, right, as is a is a way to a um, you know d- distract Russian troops somewhat, open a, open another front. Maybe that would actually be useful, especially since my understanding is the South Ossetia and Abkhazia are also going largely undefended. Um, under current circumstances, so maybe a slightly more offensive posture, not not maybe a posture that actually engages in a hot war in Georgia again, but certainly a posture that would uh, require more Russian troops be deployed to Georgia would be helpful under these circumstances, right? Um, so I think there, there's there's different you know slight gradations of uh, of slightly different approaches here that could be useful. Slava Ukraine. Uh, just to add on this topic is that uh, when you're thinking about the Russia, you should thinking about this special place, this special uh, place because it's not like a normal civilized place like uh, Europe or any, any other um, Western country. So from the when the war started in 2022, uh, we uh, a lot of heard from these officials. Uh, of uh, generals, uh, Russian officials, that they call, always saying, meaning no losses. So they uh, did saying not just to Ukrainians, but they uh, uh, always repeated to uh, their own uh, media, because it's like a Russian propaganda. So and now just to turn this up, uh, this mobilization, like uh, for people from the Moscow or maybe St. Petersburg, who actually they are pretty well. They have enough money, they have enough resources, even though the sanctions started to work, but they, they're still not feeling right that is hitting them. And now to say them that uh, you need to go to the Ukraine and fight for the Russia, like a because Russia is threatened of the NATO, it's absolutely crazy. For them, it's like no explanation. How? You, one day you're saying us there is no losses, and today you want us to go to fight to the Russia. It's absolutely crazy. So um, I don't know how they're going to do this. We already having this fun in Ukraine. Uh, also, it's also confirmed that it's not going to happen. And... Um, um, to, uh, to follow the what uh, Joseph said, uh, yes, you can share this uh, space with the, uh, your friends, but also you can share it with your animals. Uh, in this space, a lot of the animals, cats, dogs, uh, wolves, so you can share it. We love animals here. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Slava Karini. Um, the, the the no losses factor of this, I think, I think this is fascinating. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a high official, well, he's the, the an ex-colonel general, I think, uh, who's now in the Russian Duma and is the head of the Defense Select Committee, however you might, however that is exactly called in Russia. Um, he said that the reason why the Russian Ministry of Defense hasn't been publishing further losses since March 
is because no more Russians have been killed in Ukraine since then, which, I mean, is patently untrue, right? Um, and that the KIA stand at 1,300-something that was first published by Russians in March, and, you know, that that's it. And you're right, and this is just one more illustration of just how Orwellian the situation in Russia is, right? The domestic political propaganda is managing to persuade the vast majority of people that, you know, whatever the official reports are, those are indeed the true reports. And it's all fine, really. And everything in Ukraine is going exactly according to plan. A hundred and what are we? 136 days into the three-day special operation. Um, and, and that's why it is how it is. And at the same time, NATO is a huge threat uh, while they're removing forces from NATO borders. Um, no, you're, it, it is a, it's a very curious situation of being able of being able to persuade basically the entire gigantic country into believing completely diametrically opposite um incoherent things all at the same time it's not just double think it's more like you know um dodecaduple thing i guess something along those lines something along those lines anyway michael yeah hey, good morning uh good evening wherever you are uh just reading the news about uh the g20 summit in bali and uh, apparently uh, as we all know uh, putin didn't show up uh, as we speculated about some days earlier and uh, lavrov already uh, left after being called uh, invader and uh, uh whatever and uh, yeah i i thought that was uh, pretty funny that uh, uh, the tough man Lavrov uh, fled the open criticism. Criticism. I agree. Uh, I found it very funny as well. And I think it's uh, it's great that they're being told to their face that they're full of shit, uh, so to speak, right? Um, Lavrov has been going around for months now saying, you know, we didn't invade anyone. We're not in a war with anyone. Um, what do you mean? we've invaded someone and we're committing genocide. No, no, no. It's those other people who are committing genocide while um, not moving across uh, any international borders whatsoever. Um, it's it's great uh, that, let's say, the international community, the relevant parts of the international community stood up to his nonsense um, and that he realized that he can't get anywhere with uh, anyone anymore and just packed up and left, uh, giving a 45-second press conference in, in, in the interim. Um, as we noted earlier, even Kazakhstan is effectively um, leaving the Russian orbit, quitting the Commonwealth of Independent States on top of everything else that Kazakhstan has done over the last uh, over the last few days as well, over the last few days and weeks as well. Uh, Kryptoros. Sorry, I was just getting scripted my sheet and things too fearful. Um, Simon, um, you were talking about how Putin thinks uh, everything is going great. Um, I'm just wondering if uh, some people close to Putin is going to start disappearing soon when he realizes Russian troops are getting wrecked. Quite possibly. Um, some already have, right? Some packed up and left quite early on, like Chubais packed up and left a month into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the, the wholesale Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, in, in late March. Uh, he's recently been spotted, uh, I think, in Cyprus in some shopping center uh, a few weeks ago. Is there, is there anyone who we should be keeping our eye on in this respect? Like people who are kind of um, really sucking up to Putin, telling them everything's going great, um, who are going to be first on the chopping block when um, he realizes that they're pretty fucked. I have 
No idea. Uh, does anybody else have a good guess of who might, uh, of whom one might want to pay attention to? I don't know. I'm not that that much of a criminologist. Not that much of a criminologist. Slavo Kolin, do you have a guess? Who uh, who in Russia is most likely to be disappeared uh, because of the lack of successes in Ukraine? Uh, I'm not sure, but I think maybe some generals, maybe, I don't know, I don't really like to look what, really deep into Russian because it's like not really my interest. Thank you. Probably show yeah, that's fair enough. And? Is it Shogu, the, the, the head of defense? Yes, he is. Yes, he is. Uh, Sergei Shogu. He, he already disappeared for a while in the middle of everything and he's back now. And apparently he disappeared because he had actual um, actual medical issues. The reason why Shogu is the Minister of Defense though, is that he is considered completely non-dangerous to Putin, right? Um, it's not because he's very good at what he's supposed to be doing. It's because uh, he's bad enough that nobody would ever think he's good enough to actually be a danger to, say, Putin or, or to Putin's interests, uh, which is another thing that's worthwhile remembering when it comes to uh, let's say the, the the working dynamics within uh, the Russian high brass and Russian government. Crypto. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Um, I actually have one one more short question um, for the Ukrainian. Um, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but um, I'm curious about the slur that Russians use against Ukrainians. Um, I'm sure I'm sure everyone's heard it. And yeah, I'm not going to try and pronounce it because firstly I'll butcher it, and secondly I don't know how offensive you guys find it so i don't want to repeat it but um i was just wondering what the history of that is and like where that came from slavo Karini, do you want to give it a shot or do you want daniel to try to give it a shot mm, i understand the question i know the word it's not like a really offensive like an n-word it's like a, for us it's just funny when they're trying to pronounce it um it's not too really offending to us uh, I don't really know the history because I know it's like a hundred of years of history. It was really in the times of the Cossacks, I, I think. Uh, but it's uh, they can call us whatever they like. But it's we know that they they are Nazi. Russia is a Nazis, and other words uh, they do not work for us. We just laugh at them, so it's not working. Thank you. Thank you, Slavokini. Daniel. Okay, about the bodies. Uh, you will laugh, but I talked some weeks ago in to the morning with our American friends about a plan, how to make people acknowledge the Russian dead bodies. And I said something like, I know part of the corpses are kept in... Uh, uh, refrigerated uh, railway cars can be sent to Lithuania. They are already identified. Uh, Ukraine has a presence on Telegram and VK, can publish the names of the soldiers sent, contact the family and say, okay, we can give you the bodies. Lithuania can get a permit for Russian citizen to cross the border, I don't know, two kilometers to get the casket. And all the efforts to hide these numbers will be subversed. But uh, this is something very, very grim. But if you want to play like this, you can. Uh, other thing I want to tell, something which 
think is much more important is about uh, the presence of the rose garden. Uh, for me, it is an uh, interesting subject because I look sometimes to what uh, the soldiers who run deserts are wounded are, are saying when they come home. Dagestani, Tuvans, anyone. And the general consensus, they are totally shocked. The war had a very, very powerful uh, influence about their psychic. And uh, this will amplify. And the uh, Russian Federation is not so a homogeneous monster, what maybe we think it is. There are many centrifugal forces in the components of the Federation. <coughs> are republics which are not happy, are uh, urban centers which are neglected to the squalor style. And I think um, the huge apparatus for repression, Vectoros Guardia, which are hundreds of thousands, and they are deployed in Ukraine. They are not necessary numbers to, to stop a chain of events which can uh, start, I don't know, in Chelyabinsk, in Tatarstan, everywhere, because there will be people who will be hungry. Not, not everybody earn $500, $1,500 for any job. And also unemployment is high because uh, revolutions don't come from ideals. We like to point them in the history was, I don't know, fight for freedom, for independence. Usual is the dynamic problems of the society. You don't have food, you don't have job, people are uh, without hope, without uh, predictable future. Look at Arab Revolution. Arab Revolution was started because many young people don't have jobs. It's so simple. Or Syria, the deficit of water because Turkish made the dams, make the Syrian farmers to cannot provide food, is no food in the cities, people starve. And that is social tension. And Russia is a big producer of food, but to take the food from the European part and send it, I don't know, in the far north or far east, you need workable trains. That means technology, which they don't have access. And a lot of things broke and you have a lot of people who can work on railways, working in railways in Donbass, for example. Uh, people who can shoot you because you say something wrong about old Vova, uh, they are in Kherson, keeping people to not revolt. Uh, and can be a, a chain of events, we, totally unpredictable, but we must not forget Every authoritarian system, everything like this, can broke lightning fast. 
look what happened in China after they keep Shanghai isolated for one month without food. People start yelling in Shanghai, the, them to the communists, them to the party. So <laughs> Russia, you can hear Putin like yesterday, he said, oh, we don't see anything, we are powerful, we will do, we will try. That is the bunker speaking, is not the real Russia. And real Russia is not St. Petersburg and Moscow, Moscow, in my opinion. That's it for me. Thanks, Daniel. Um, I've got a question for you. So, you know, we've seen we've seen all the changes in Kazakhstan, right? Kazakhstan moving further and further away from, from Russia. Um, what do you think the potential is in Georgia for you know, a change, a change of heart, especially as regards to the government, but also, let's say, the popular pressure on their government to, you know, maybe take advantage, just like Kazakhstan is taking advantage of a weakened Russia or a distracted Russia. So I will speculate. It's not Alex here being Georgian to say how he is feeling. But uh, what I can say, uh, Georgians are terrible fighters, like... Catalans and Basques and other fighter people, mountain people, like Chechens, like Dagestani. Um, I think for many years they were scared about Russia. Now less people are scared about Russian army, but before they were totally scared because the rolling army in 2008 was demoralizing for them. And after Sakashvili was arrested. I think a lot, a lot of energy was channeled to be content. But now, after uh, Moldova and Ukraine ascension to the candidate status for the European Union, is, we see clear Tbilisi at least, but I don't think it's just for urban centers, uh, frustration because they lost the train a crucial train for them. I imagine I will react similarly if Romania will lost some, some chance like this. And uh, it's clear government is weak. It's very, very weak at this moment. Because economic, they don't stay well. So public opinion is against government. The garrison from the two political entities supported by Moscow is very low because they get the militia from there to Ukraine. And I think they retreat them after three or four weeks because probably casualty were huge and their skill was low. And Georgians done this one more time. If their uh, government fail and uh, Another political movement, not necessarily party, a movement from the people tries something to be closer to Bruxelles and Washington. Understanding the clock is ticking. You can see uh, a huge pressure. But also, I must say, Georgia is not a hard pressure point for the Russians because it's a small country, small population, very mountainous. Of course, the access is from a tunnel in the mountains, which strategically is very, very, very skittish, I can say. But 
I don't think Georgia will add so much pressure for paranoid Russia to react military. I think this will be Kazakhstan and will be very, 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 very soon. All the northern Kazakhstan is Russian, very Russian. And people who are loyal to Moscow, not to any capital you choose in Kazakhstan. In my opinion, Kazakhstan will be the final blow because um, they hit hard Tokayev. Tokayev was in the very bad situation when the grievances started and after that they our friend from Kazakhstan described that was a false flag and he saw the GRU and FSB hand that with the blood of Kazakhs on the streets and Tokayev was very very anti-Russian very fast from the first days he said we will not send troops we support the integrity of the Ukraine. So it's clear he chose a path. He said, probably, imagine he has the buck covered by China. Uh, he has gas, he has oil, he has clients, China and European Union. He has uh, an example like Azerbaijan and also you know, uh, when empires die, empires go with huge explosions, never like a whimper. And I think Tokayev has a good smell and feel it, the corpse of Russian Federation. And if he's a pressure there, uh, the public of big urban centers in Russia, the pundits will claim Putin to intervene and this will be catastrophic if they send sailors from Pacific fleet to fight in Ukraine I just wonder where they'll get the soldiers to intervene in Kazakhstan Kazakhstan is a huge country it's bigger than Ukraine so in my opinion is more nevralgic point than Georgia thank you Daniel um Matthew, what do you think um so Earlier today, we saw Kazakhstan removing itself from the Commonwealth of Independent States. I think they're down to eight members now, uh, whereas they started with 12, um, you know, 30 years ago. Um, Kazakhstan has been making step after step after step, uh, effectively removing itself from the Russian sphere of influence step by step over the past few weeks. Um, where do you see this going? Well, I agree with Daniel with two, in many extents. I think that it, this is a key. Uh, of course, Manashid, did you meet yourself or are you having technical difficulty? Of course, and then, oh God. Mache, mic check. Mache, Daniel, can you hear me? But not Mache. Very well. Okay, but you can't see Mache, right? You can't hear Mache. It was short answer. It's good for me. Yo, sorry, sorry, guys. I was, uh, I just received, because I, yeah, I, people from work were calling me. I had to take the, the phone call. So that's, that's the problem here. Oh, very well, with those technical difficulties. Okay, you, you ended on, of course. Of course. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I, th- yeah, I was always saying that uh, Russian problems will come from the extremities, not from the center, right? And, of course, it's not like my original thought, but, but I kind of analyze it like this. So, 
So it's not about somebody was asking previously about the people we have to watch for. And I don't think there are people like that uh, if it comes to whether they're danger to Putin. Even if you look at the suicides, right? Uh, there are, for me, there are not, their goal is not to eliminate a person that is dangerous to Putin, but to send the message that I'm still holding the power here. And uh, basically, if you even disgruntle about the fact that the rent pie, the, the, the rents that the Kremlin is distributing is getting smaller and is contracting, and maybe you on the outside where you were previously on the inside of, of receiving, you know, lucrative uh, business deals and, and stuff like this, you better not voice your concern because it might be really bad for you. So I think that's the, that's the key. When it comes to places like Kazakhstan, I think the Commonwealth uh, was, uh, was a done deal for a really long time. It's, you know, the, it's a saying that the international organizations never end. They just cease to be relevant, right? So, I, but I think it's huge. The Tokayev play here is somewhat of a bellwether uh, how the closer allies to Russia kind of assess the situation overall. That's why I feel it's even more important to look at what Tokayev is doing than at what Russia advances uh, actually are in Ukraine. Because I don't think, so I don't think that it's going to be just the Ukrainians, and of course it's a huge factor and, and a key factor, but it's not going to be just uh, Ukrainians receiving enough weapons to retake territories. It's going to be also about geopolitics of the region, the whole region, Kazakhstan included, getting so unfavorable to Russia and Russia becoming weaker and weaker that just sustaining operations on the peripheries will become more and more costly. And I think the analogy with the, the, the dissolution of Soviet Union is, is actually correct, although there are huge differences, right? Soviet Union was theoretically... You know, there was a kind of parity, for example, between Ukrainians, theoretically, I'm saying, and Russians, ethnic Russians. But, of course, it was always uh, just just some paper, right? But it was a different system. Now, where does Kazakhstan go from here? It's a difficult question, right? I think China is, uh, is the first place to look for. Uh, but but yeah, that is my, my that is my thinking on it. That that's just uh, it's just a bellwether and a signal for you that Putin and I agree completely with Daniel. Like it's uh, uh, it, it that their decision stems from their uh, assessment of the Kremlin's ability to project power, right? Because Russia is not a you know so Finland and Sweden are not becoming part of NATO because they fear that US or France or Germany or Poland were going to invade them. So basically they fear the, uh, the, the countries of the alliance. They're becoming a part of the NATO uh, and Ukraine wants to be part of uh, European Union because for them it makes sense. It's an attractive proposal, right? Uh, with all the proposals that Russia has for its allies, usually the projection of power, the threat of use of, uh, you know, military intervention and stuff like that, or not even military intervention, of intervening in your country's affairs through corruption, through influence, through, you know, 
agents, provocateurs and, and different stuffs, it's always there. So that's why you, you play with Russia. And, and it's always like that when Russia becomes weaker, all, all, all of a sudden, all of its allies want to uh, basically go their own way because, yeah, they, they think the Russia will, for at least some time, this is their window of opportunity. So I don't think it's going to, it's not a given that Kazakhstan kind of de-aligning, de like resigning from their alignment with Russia is something that will be beneficiary in the long run because, well, Kazakhstan aligning themselves with China is not, not so great for the West, uh, collective West. But in the short run, I think it's it's, it's an important signifier of, of what is actually happening. So I think it's also not completely clear as to whether this will actually occur because this constantly proposed alignment with China. I remind you of what happened in the days of the Russian-Kazakh conflict, if I may call it this way, or the upheaval. Chinese troops were offered, they were even amassed at the southeastern border of Kazakhstan. Advisors were sent and consultants, but essentially rejected. I'm not sure that um, China will actually be able to take that very easily. It is much more likely that uh, the good connections which do exist, uh, especially in the hydrocarbon industry with the West, will lead um, to a re allocation of, in this case, interests of the West. And you may well find the coalition of the willing supporting Kazakhstan substantially more than anybody would have thought, and very quickly so. I don't think that China has currently the means or the power to occupy such a stage untested, unchallenged. I think we shouldn't make ourselves smaller than we actually are. And I think you're right. I, I think it's just uh, this bird's eye view geopolitics that tend to be kind of amateurish to say uh, there is only this alternative on the table, right? It seems uh, logical, but I, I think the details are always in uh, in play here that, that can be really problematic. I, I think you're right about that. And we should not underestimate in this regard uh, the Chinese banking crisis and uh, the showdown which is happening in their property valuation at the moment, Chinese consumer confidence, uh, thanks to the authoritarian lockdowns, is, um, shall we say, challenged. The supply chain within China as manufacturing is um, not just impaired, it is in many, many respects broken. The reintegration of manufacturing, first, second, and third layer manufacturing um, and pre for prefabricated goods into what is uh, Eastern Europe is not just on the horizon and has already happened for a number of years. I tend to believe that after the um, after Ukraine wins the war, you will see, thanks to its integration into the EU, a substantial uptick in manufacturing um, to be executed in Ukraine, as well as Romania and. Uh, to a large extent, of course, in Slovakia, Poland, and uh, even at a later stage, this will engulf Moldavia, because there is a young population, partially already very well trained. Some nations still need to invest more into this, but Ukraine always had a very technical, skilled uh, overall population, high precision capacity, and uh, very good quality management. I think you will see a substantial um, turn, a substantial shift and reallocation in terms of terms of trade and uh, manufacturing capacity, which will lead 
those who are sort of say in the middle and who produce more hydrocarbons than they produce manufacturing, and this includes Kazakhstan, to very carefully consider these signs already today. Because they, as you said before, uh, Daniel, uh, our friends in Kazakhstan can sense the movements and the earth shifting. It is another layer about Chinese. Today I was in a space of Bloomberg and they discussed the declaration of adjunct of foreign ministry and he said something like United States uh, made terrorist attack on the technology against China. Uh, you know all the talks about Europe, United States to build plans for microprocessors, but uh, it's interesting this idea. Uh, G20 in Indonesia was a show where Russians and Chinese to be the other side of G7. And G7, not only them, make Lavrov to go home. So it's very, very, very interesting how things evolve in this relation. And again, we must watch Turkey. Um, let's go to Thanos, but also Axel, could you please uh, get um, Maciej a co-host spot? Because I need to jump off in a couple of minutes for, for a little while. So interesting thing about China right now coming out of its lockdowns, which seemed that they, they keep doing this in perpetuity. And it obviously transcends beyond any kind of public health uh, incentive and more or less helps to reestablish uh, government primacy in every single facet of the Chinese people's lives. The, the challenge for them is going to be finance. So when you, just like we saw uh, throughout the United States, when a lot of the state and local governments shut down the economy, uh, when you interrupt the, the machinations of capitalism, whether it's Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics, or if it's straight to capitalism or something close to it, like you find in the United Kingdom or, or in the United States, uh, you have to prime the pump after you, uh, after you shut everything down, right? Uh, it, it's basic physics, right? PV equals NRT. You, you got to do something to get the, the pump working again. And in the case of the Chinese, uh, their finances are a complete mess. And if you believe everything that state media puts out, you'll, you won't believe it. But if you look at how they have distributed national debt down to individual investors and how they are playing a shell game, uh, basically trying to prop up their currency as well as their economy on real estate value that are total garbage uh, and, and will always be garbage because no one is going to move into half of those properties that are being held on the books and whose values are being uh, inexplicably inflated. Uh, the Chinese have no means of priming their pump. Foreign direct investment into China is at something like a 20-year low. Uh, so the jig is up. Everybody knows it. 
Uh, the only people who are pretending like uh, the jig is not up are despots who are the, the sole beneficiaries of the Belt Road Initiative, which is condemning uh, their respective countries to slavery. So looking towards the future as to what benefit China uh, may play to Russia and vice versa, it's, it's hard to guess that there is anything there in the mid to long term. Uh, but in the short term, uh, that's where we need to maintain our, our focus uh, as to the ability of both of these countries to split the West's attention uh, through both their devious machinations in uh, Ukraine and Eastern Europe, as well as uh, in Taiwan and in the rest of the Indo-Pacific. Thanks. Very good points. Very well said. And I completely agree with you. I've been together with colleagues have been uh, following the matter of their banking system and real estate for, what's it, one and a half decades now. Fortunately, we um, left the Chinese market with our efforts um, in the late 2010s and um, for better, definitely, because it was already visible that this boom was absolutely not only unsustainable, but it was actually just reallocating debt to other parties by means of transferring very cheaply built assets uh, for no other reason than population control. A terrible marketplace. Thanks, Axel. And, and it's, uh, it, it's awesome when, when, an, uh, when I can get your seal of approval on something because you obviously know considerably more about economics than I do. I wrote a paper in the War College back in about 2015, 2016. And basically, the, the, the gist of my master's thesis was that uh, China had a very limited window of opportunity given its uh, shady finances and uh, the fact that it was not going to be able to sustain its military and economic growth beyond uh, the early 2020s. And so looking at all of Xi Jinping's strategic goals, and they were massive, and what he was uncharacteristically willing to mortgage in terms of the future in order to achieve those goals, it was just absolutely transparent that the window of opportunity for him to move on Taiwan to achieve his quote-unquote China dream was going to be closed by about 2024, no longer, no later than 2025. And so I'm very curious to see how this ends up because the United States of America and, and maybe to a lesser extent, our, our regional allies and, and the United Kingdom. I don't know how you guys view this, but we've always kind of held China at double arm's length in terms of when we thought they were going to be a, a real-time strategic adversary. And so, you know, first it was, oh, 2020, then 2045. And, and now, you know, we're, we're having these plans to to potentially be in a war and, you know, even beyond that. And it's, it's a hell of a way to run a railroad when your obvious greatest strategic adversary, uh, well, adversaries in terms of both Russia and China spent the past 20 years planning to fight them in Ford. So I, I, I don't know how uh, the 